Let's pray. Lord, um, I want to pray your blessing on all those children that have just gone out today. Bless the time that they will have together and bless the teaching they will receive. Enrich their lives, we pray, that they may grow to love you more and more. Amen. We're going to come to God's Word, and we started last week reading the the book of Hebrews. We're not going to read every chapter, but we are going to read chapter 2 today. Um, as we as we go through this book. So let's read and hear the word of the Lord. May it speak to us from Hebrews chapter 2. May we, sorry, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, that's the disciples. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. And here the writer quotes Psalm 8, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those 
who are being tempted. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word as we meditate on this together. May he speak to us by his Holy Spirit. Nope, that's fine. Last week, I introduced the letter of the Hebrews, and we said we didn't really know much about the folk, who, the person who wrote it, and we didn't really know much about the people who it was written to, very little at all. But what we do know is that their world 2,000 years ago will have been drastically different from ours in every way, in such a way that it might be tempting to say, you know what, we don't know anything about them at all, and what have we got in common with them? But I mentioned this verse in in chapter 12, where it talks about how they felt. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and make a level path. And those brilliant verbal picture pictures somebody who's slumped like that and is tripping up over their own feet. And you may not really recognize an awful lot in these people from 2,000 years ago, but I, I, I wager every single person here knows what it is to feel like that. And particularly as Christians, when we're having a hard time and we're tired, we recognize that. See, here's the thing. People 2,000 years ago that we've got nothing in common with, but we do have this. We know what it is to feel like losers. Yeah? It's the one thing that every human being has in common. We know what it is to feel like a loser. This week, doing the television rounds, um, I'm I'm hearing on all these these political chat shows is Liz Truss. Now, I'm going to say something very controversial just now. I feel very sorry for Liz Truss. And I'll tell you why, and it's nothing to do with the politics. It is to do with the fact that from now on, every time her name is mentioned, the word failure will come to mind. She reached the highest office and held it for five minutes. She brought in a set of policies, and they didn't work. Now, we may know nothing about the life of prime ministers and can't identify with her at all and don't agree with anything she said, but I'll tell you this. You know what it is to feel humiliated, and you know what it is to feel like a failure. Don't you? I do. We start off with something with high hopes. I came into ministry thinking I was going to build big churches and see lots of folk come to faith, and I feel like a failure. And every single one of us in our Christian lives, in our parenting lives, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, knows what it is to feel like a complete failure. I I went and bought the book that the Archbishop of Canterbury had recommended that people read in Lent. I've just started it, so I don't know whether it's any good, but it's called Failure. And it's written by a bishop, and all she wants to talk about is what it means to be a screw-up. And you know what? I don't know much about what the book's saying, because I haven't got very far. It seems to be very good. I'll let you know next week when I've finished it. But the word failure resonated. And that is one of the things that we want to think about today as we think this. What is it we're going to say to each other? What is it the gospel has to say to us in that sense of failure, that sense that things are disappointing? And last week we saw how the sermon began, this book of Hebrews in chapter 1. And it began with the writer saying, 
I just want you to look at Jesus. And I want you to see how powerful your Jesus is. I want you to see that you're secure in him. He is the one through whom God made the whole world. He's the one through whom God holds it all in being. And he is the end, the heir of all things. He's the Lord of angels. He's the reflection of the glory of God. He is the destiny of, the, of God. And I spoke about how in, in, in Greek Orthodox churches, very often on the ceiling of the church, they have a massive picture of Jesus lifted up and ruling over all things. Pantocrator, they call it. And the idea is when you come into worship, however you're feeling, whatever a failure you're feeling, you see this image and you recognize that Jesus is in control. A big Jesus. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Or as I used to sing in Sunday school, does anyone else know the song, When the Road is Rough and Steep? Did you ever sing that? Oh, we need to do that. When the road is rough and steep... Fix your eyes upon Jesus. He alone has power to keep. Fix your eyes on him. And that was chapter one in a nutshell. The second chapter, the focus changes. You see, there are two vital things that Christians need to know about Jesus, and they matter to how we live. One is he is God and he is powerful. And the other is this. He became human and he was humiliated and he suffered. And what the writer does in, in chapter 2 is he actually does a Bible study. He takes us into Psalm 8, which is perhaps my favorite psalm. And he takes us through Psalm 8 where it says these words, when I consider your heavens, the work of your hands, I ask the question, what is mankind? What are human beings that you're mindful of them, that they are important at all. And he concludes in Psalm 8, you have made them just a little bit lower than angels. Look how beautiful they are. You crown them with glory and honor. They are creative. They are able to do things and build things and think things and choose things. And you made them rulers over the works of your hand. They are the top of creation. And if that was true 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, look how it is now as we have made deserts bloom and we've put men on the moon and we have, we have invented things and created things and built computers and all the rest of it. But what the psalmist is saying and what Hebrews is echoing is, you know what? Every single human being is made in the image of God and every single human being is given that dignity and is given that, that importance and that value because God created them and just made them just a little bit lower than angels. Now, you know, that's really important because that is why Christians value human life. Every human life from the moment it starts till the moment it ends. It's why the Christian church is never going to be comfortable with abortion. It's never going to be comfortable with euthanasia at one end and the other end. And it's going to fight for every bit of human dignity in the middle. Fight against the indignities of oppression. Fight against the indignities of abuse. Fight against the indignities of poverty, of misogyny, of racism. You know, this is a bit of an aside, but... We call no human being, no matter what they've done, no matter how evil they have behaved, scum. You know, the, the media and the political debate so often does that, doesn't it? It comes out with that title, scum. I, I, a few 
few years ago now, we were running a food bank in, in, in where I was previously, and some folks stole from it. And the local paper got the story, and they ran a headline that said, Scum Abuse a Food Bank. And I went to the editor, and he said, well, we, we're, we were, we're grateful for what the church has done, and we wanted to write this story about how bad it was people abused. And I said, if you've got any idea what the church is about, you will never call people scum. The reason we run food banks, the reason we do everything we do is because we believe every human being is made in the image of God. I don't know why they did that. I don't approve of what they did, but they are made in God's image. And that, if you follow Jesus in any way, is what you find in every single page of the New Testament, of the Gospels, and every encounter Jesus had. No matter how terrible they were, no matter the guy that had stolen from everyone, had been put to death justly on a cross beside him, the forgiveness and the love just echo out through Jesus. Two vital pieces of theology. Jesus is Lord of all, and He came for us and suffered, and we see that in Him. But, says the letter to the Hebrews, God has made these human beings, and He has given them such a dignity and a worth and a potential, and He has put everything under their feet. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. What does that mean? It means that the reality that we experience is these brilliant things that God has created, these human beings, and yet we look at the world today and we see that they may be ultimately valuable, but they are also completely broken. And I don't need to rehearse that, do I? Lift your newspapers, look at the relationships around you, look deep into your own soul, and you see it. Things are not the way that God meant them to be in so many ways. And yet, here is the gospel. And the gospel always says this in our modern world. It says this, every single one is valuable, but every single one is broken. So we don't say to people, be yourself. We say you are loved, but we want you to find the Lord Jesus, that in Him you may be renewed into the image of what God has created you to be. We do not see currently everything subject to them. But the writer goes on to say this, we do see Jesus. And when things are failing, and when things are miserable, and when you feel like a screw-up, we don't see everything the way it should be. But we do see Jesus. And much more than that, we see Jesus, we see Jesus, and we see Him in all of His humanity. Jesus suffering injustice. Jesus suffering death so that we might experience the glory of what we are created to be. You know, when Jesus walked along the road to Emmaus, and we talked about this earlier, and those disciples, and they looked at Jesus, and all they saw was the guy that had died on the cross, and they felt the whole thing was a failure as they walked away that Easter evening. All their hopes dashed, all their, their, their hope for the world gone, their friends gone, their friends all scattered because of their failure, and they walked with this guy, and they didn't know he was Jesus, and he told them, and he told them two things. He said it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer in this way, and then, and then, enter into glory. God's purpose 
through Jesus' suffering, was to heal all that was broken. The writer goes on to say this. He goes on to say, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's us, it was fitting that God, through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through what He was suffering. Now, here's the thing. The writer says, it is fitting that Jesus, who came to save us, suffered. And, and, and immediately, you think, fitting? How is it fitting that the perfect person who did no wrong, who was the ruler of creation, the heir of all things, suffered? How is that right? In fact, if we wanted to say, what's the one thing that's wrong with the world? It's that good people suffer, isn't it? Fitting. What does it mean? This was exactly why the Romans thought that, you know, Christianity is a load of garbage. It's fine that you've got a new God. That's fine. We've got lots of gods. But God should be big and powerful and able to sort out the world. They shouldn't be humiliated failures that get killed on a cross. This, for the Romans, was utter madness. But Hebrews says it's fitting. It's the same expression that John the Baptist used. Do you remember John the Baptist was, was baptizing folk? And basically, they were coming in huge crowds to John the Baptist, and he was coming and saying, you're a sinner. You need to repent and be baptized. You're a sinner. You need to repent and be baptized. You're a sinner. You need to repent and be baptized. And so the crowd was going on like that. And then Jesus comes along, and, 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 and John says, you're a not a sinner. Hold on. What's going on here? And then he says, John, John says, this is wrong. This isn't right. You're perfect. You don't need to be baptized. And Jesus says, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness that I stand with my brothers and sisters, the rest of humanity. See, what does this mean in bringing many sons and daughters to glory? It means that what Jesus is about doing is restoring the dignity of human beings, restoring the value of human beings, restoring the potential of human beings, restoring the relationship human beings are supposed to have with God, that the glory and the beauty of the angels that we were created for might be back in us once again. And Jesus is the one that is leading the way into this route of salvation where God puts right the failures of the world again. And it says that Jesus was made perfect by suffering. Now, that doesn't mean he was made morally perfect because Hebrews will say somewhere else he was without sin. It rather means this. God was perfecting the way in which he would bring us to a place where we would be forgiven, a place where we would be restored, a place where we would be healed. Paul puts it this way in Romans where he says, the present suffering of the world is not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed when we are revealed for what God is doing in us. How is Jesus made perfect? A few things. First of all, we're one family. Jesus calls us His family. 
you know, back to the Easter story. Mary Magdalene is in the garden, and she meets Jesus. And she eventually realizes it's him. And he says to her, go and tell my brothers that I'm alive. Now, he means by that those 12 men. Go and tell my brothers. It's a strange thing to say because I know what I would have said if I'd been Jesus. Go and tell those stupid screw-ups that ran away, got scared, and didn't believe a word I said that they're wrong. But no, Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. Here is Jesus identifying with us in our brokenness and our failure. And that's part of the gospel message. When we pray and say, Lord, I am a failure. I have screwed up. I have suffered. I have got things wrong. The world is on top of me. We are praying to one who understands because he was human and he suffered in every way like us. Do you get that? We sometimes think we're praying to a big God up there and he can't possibly understand what's happening in my life. And the Lord Jesus says, I know. I had pals that let me down too. I had a world that was against me. I had physical pain. I had a government that didn't care. You know all those things you're yelling about? I've been there. That's the number one thing. But it's more than that. It's not just that we have an understanding God. It's that in Jesus we have one who died and then rose again. He didn't just come along and say, well, you know what? Um, I've come that I might understand who you are. You know, if you were... Drowning, you've fallen into a lake, and somebody comes along and says, well, you know, I'll jump in beside you, and I'll drown with you, and then I'm showing solidarity, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your pal. You would say, well, that's very kind, but it's very useless, isn't it? But if somebody climbs in beside you and goes through everything you're going through, and the panic, and the water, and the cold, and everything else, and then says, I'm doing this in order that I can pull you out. That's the Savior. And the thought about this salvation is it's not just a guy on the shore saying, here's what you need to do to save yourself. Nor is it a guy who just comes into the water and drowns with you. It's one who comes right into where you're at and says, let me lead you out. Let me take you out. Let me show you the way. And that is what the Lord Jesus does that brings us to eternal life. Jesus on the cross experiences total defeat. That's what the cross is. It's the whole of human history, the whole of the Roman Empire saying you are worthless and you are destroyed and your movement is over. He experiences our total failure. So that Paul can say, if he didn't rise from the dead, then the whole of faith is a lie and is rubbish. But he did rise from the dead. The passage ends with these words. To free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, that is the ultimate fear that every human being has the fear of death. And sometimes we say, I don't fear death, but actually we do because when we die, the big fear is everything that we have stood for, everything that we have done is negated. Everything we have built has gone. We have loved our relationships, but they're over. We have built our careers, but it's at an end. 
It's the ultimate sign that our humanity can only go so far, and then it is failure. But here, the Lord Jesus coming and saying that is not the end. Through suffering, we rise again with Him who came into our suffering. And that doesn't just mean we've got a hope of eternal life. It means we are free to live now because we know that ultimately, however many times we fail, however many times we fall down, however many times we screw up, however many times it hurts, we can't lose because Jesus took our failure and rose again. And in Him, we too will rise again. Whatever our suffering, our pain, our failure, our weakness, our exhaustion, it cannot defeat us. It cannot negate us. It will not have the last word. And that's why as Christians, we don't have to boast. We can be very open that we are failures. In fact, when we do that, just like when Jesus enters into it, very often that makes other people able to open up to us, doesn't it? You know, how many times have you had a discussion and someone said, I, I, I've blown it, I've been a rubbish parent, I've been bad at my job, and that's actually enabled you to open up. We can be open about our failures, but we do it in hope because we know the Lord Jesus entered into all of that and He is the pioneer that takes us through to the promise of God that is resurrection. And so we will come to the table to share that together. As we take the bread and the wine, we come confessing our own weakness and our own brokenness, but remembering Him who died on the cross for us, remembering Him whose human life seemed like a complete failure. And we proclaim, as we will say, the death of the Lord until He comes again.